Shopify Masters is powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. In terms of how we communicate through influencers, really what we would do is I, I would email them early on and say, hey, we have this product. We love your hair. We'd love to give you some. We'd love to have you try it. Um, here's kind of how to use it. And here's what it is. Hey, my name is Felix. I'm the host of Shopify Masters. Each week, we learn the keys to success from e-commerce experts and entrepreneurs like you. In this episode, you'll learn how to vet your vendors, how to determine if an employee will be a good fit within 30 days, and how to overcome the education gap when your target customers don't know about your solution at all. Today, I'm joined by Leora and Megan from Overtone.co. That's O-V-E-R-T-O-N-E.co. Overtone conditioners keep your fantasy-colored hair looking as bright on day 60 as it did on day one and was started in 2014 and has two, two uh, I guess, headquarters, uh, Tucson and Denver. Welcome, Leora and Megan. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Yeah, excited to have the both of you on. So tell us a little bit more about these uh, conditioners, these pro- the products that, that you sell from the store. Yeah, so our uh, line of color depositing conditioners are our primary product right now. We have 22 different colors across two different conditioner types. And basically, the idea is if you have fantasy hair colors, anything pink, blue, green, something like that, it tends to fade out really fast. So we made a conditioner that um, just filled a need in the market so your hair doesn't fade. Basically, what you do is stop using your regular white conditioner, instead use one of our conditioners that matches the color of your hair and it replaces the pigment you wash down the drain. Nice. Megan and I are, uh, are big have your cake and eat it too people. So we totally. were not satisfied with uh, the lifestyle changes we needed to make when we dyed our hair. So <laughs> <laughs> we're not down for cold showers or no, skipping like the gym because you can't wash your hair yeah. things like that. Now, was there like no, I guess, alternative at the time? Like there was no other product out there that met those the exact needs that, that you two needed? Not really. Um, there was there's like a homegrown DIY method that's really popular where you mix your dye in with your conditioner. Sometimes um, stylists will make that for their clients who have uh, fantasy color hair or high upkeep needs. Um, but nothing was really direct to consumer available in the colors that we use. So it was definitely uh, it, it was definitely a high education product for for that reason. So a lot of what we focus on is uh, giving as as best uh, customer service as we can and. Um, really educating um, educating the fantasy hair color world about um, the fact that they don't have to take cold showers and that they can, you know, exercise and that their hair doesn't have to fade. They don't have to choose a dye brand based on whether or not uh, it fades well or not. Um, so, yeah, um, there, there really wasn't much. Like, yeah. yeah. We also found based on personal experience that that standard DIY mix of dye and conditioner really um, messes with the emollients and the conditioner that you use. And basically... Just continues kinda, to dry. Yeah, it just kind of continues to dry out your hair. So chemically, it kind of cancels out the good stuff in the conditioner. And then your hair, which you've already probably, if you have fantasy colored hair, bleach a lot at this point, is now not really getting uh, conditioned on a regular basis. So we wanted something that was like, not only you don't have to let your hair fade, you don't have to take cold showers, but also you can have your hair be healthy and grow it out and have it just be normal we don't want to have pink straw on our heads you know <laughs> now do you both come from the the hair and beauty industry how did, what was the, what was the background 
Uh, no. Negative. Neither <laughs> of us do, actually. Um, I uh, Before we started the company, I was a freelance photographer, and I had done a couple stints in beauty, and I worked um, locally with with up-and-coming you know, fashion and, and beauty people in, in our local scene. Uh, so heavy interest, but uh, nothing professional on a, on a production and retail level. <laughs> and um, before this, I, I have a background in chemistry. I was working in healthcare and business. Um, but I, you know, had weird hair and wanted it to last longer. And so it just, it came out of like personal need more than anything. Definitely. Megan was a big connoisseur. Uh, <laughs> she, like when we first started the company, I think she had like one more conference to go to. Yeah. And, uh, it was right after she dyed her hair blue, which like copper or like orange, you could have as like acceptable sort of healthcare IT. Mm-hmm. Position, but not but, blue. But not blue. So I took wigs. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So this is a, a pretty daunting. It seems at least a pretty daunting product to to start with, right? Because you had to learn all about this new industry, about how to make a product like this. Did you? Did, well, before I get there, do did you have either? You have experience in starting businesses or launching products prior to Overtone. Um, I mean, with freelance photography, it's it's sort of a different uh, it's sort of a different business base. And I had mm-hmm. done a lot of work with uh, small businesses in high school, kind of working as assistants and stuff like that. But um, I think Megan and I say this pretty frequently. If we if we knew what a challenge it would be, we would have stopped a lot sooner. Yeah, we might not have started. We, yeah. we both had experience running small businesses, um, other people's businesses, and we both also had experience here and there um, starting our own. Eh, semi-successful companies that really didn't go much of anywhere, um, weren't, you know, big monetizable efforts. Um, so we didn't come in with no experience, but we definitely were not prepared for what was going to happen. That's for sure. It was definitely a surprise to both of us. Um, but we really took it in stride, I think. And it was just kind of like, both of us are, are people who it's like, when the work comes, we are ready for it. And we're just kind of like, all right, this is what we need to do for the next six months. Awesome. Let's just buckle down and do it. So um, when things started to kind of, when, when the tide really turned, we were, um, we didn't drown, but we definitely fell over a little bit. Yeah. yeah. I think like, honestly, like the majority of what's helped us along the way is a lot of gut instinct and also the willingness to put in kind of the sweat equity and stomach acid when push comes to shove and just like do it and work um, hundred hour yeah. weeks and just like, and blood, yeah. and blood, and blood, <laughs> and blood. <laughs> Yeah. So, so what were some of these um, big surprises that that you both encountered that were much more difficult than expected, or maybe you didn't expect it at all, and then just kind of fell into your lap? What were some of these big surprises? Um, well, we definitely didn't expect uh, labeling bottles to be so hard. We manufacture and fill all of our products, but the way that it works in the industry is that you're supposed to manufacture your project, your your product, fill your containers, and then label them. And we really needed to walk around the fill in the label court like uh, co- uh, collection or, or that part of it. Um, and we didn't realize that that's what the problem was, but we kept hitting these big uh, roadblocks when we tried to get uh, bottles labeled and sent to us. And it was just like, oh my God, like, why can't we get this done? <laughs> we had a lot of labels that were like horrible quality. And for the first, for a long time, like maybe even the first six months, we were labeling every single bottle by hand because it's just we had one label provider who we could count on and they could only send us labels in like 
sheets that we had to tear off ourselves. Yeah, that's where the blood came in yeah. a lot of the time. <laughs> it's like you label that many bottles. And I mean, like, I think my calluses have just started to go away from uh, like on your thumbs from from pushing Ouch. it on. <laughs> yeah. So if uh, if you ever bought Overtone in the first uh, six months, in the first six months, you definitely got that a hand label <laughs> bottle. <laughs> Maybe with some blood stains on it, too. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Well, that, but, like, I think it's that kind of stuff that people don't realize behind the scenes. Even when we got to the point where we were um, considered to be quite successful in terms of um, gross sales, we were still doing so much ourselves and we were um, just pushing so much. And the process was still so manual and so customized and still so much of it we were doing really so many of the jobs ourselves. Mm -hmm. mm. Now today, how do you, or today when you are looking at a provider to provide these labels and, you know, just kind of a, a lesson that, that you guys have learned that you can share with other folks that have, that are in the stage that you were at, how do you identify what kind of uh, provider can provide good labels for, for your products? So we found over time that we have to really stop looking for vendors and start looking for partners. And the way that we do that is we do a really serious vetting process with anyone that we intend to use. And especially anyone who is going to be kind of a potential stopgap in our um, in our entire um, supply chain process. So mm -hmm. for tables, for example, um, we spent a really significant amount of time talking around, asking for recommendations, doing a lot of searching. And then when we got down to it, um, we contacted a handful of companies and our, our first red flag is if you don't get back to us within 24 hours, 48 at the very least, like you're out of the running. Yeah. We, the second, the second we have to chase you to give you money, it's uh, it's a big red flag for us that it's going to cost us a lot of time down the road. We've had too many times where vendors are just non-responsive. They're hard to communicate with. And that's the easiest red flag for that. Um, and then I think the other main thing that we try to do with any vendor partnerships is um, really call their other customers um, and get a feel for someone who is a peer to us, someone who is also e-commerce, if that's relevant, someone who does a similar bottle type, bottle shape, multiple SKUs, something like that, mm -hmm. um, and get feedback from them on kind of how the relationship works for them, because that that can be the most telling thing. We've had plenty of vendors that we've been totally gung-ho for, and then we've spoken to a client of theirs, and they've been like, eh, you know, like, they're fine, but... Yeah, I think the other thing is, um, and then, then once you select that partner, developing a relationship mm -hmm. with our current um, bottle and label provider, it took, um, we actually like exchanged sales partners within their team. We spoke with upper management um, when we found issues in that, that weren't up to our QC standards. We really made sure they knew about it, not in a in, in, a, in an expectant way. Mm -hmm. um, we we uh, expected them to hold our standards as their standards because they were representing us. So when things didn't necessarily look as perfect as we needed them to, or there was a slight miss or there was something going on, we made sure that they knew about it so that we could correct it in the future. And as a result, we have a really responsive communication with them and uh, they know uh, what information we need to know when we need to know it. And uh, we know how to explain processes to them that we need done. Yep. Because we had to go through so much finding labels and had that as such a hard kind of piece of our supply chain, we now have a really excellent relationship with our label provider. Um, and I think it's just having to go through that, you know, at some level, um, it definitely at the C level, but at the executive team level in any company, for the most part, like 
they care. They want to be successful. They want a partnership with you. Even if you're a small fish and you feel like you don't have really any play here and you can't pull any strings because you're not big enough to matter to them, the people at an executive level, especially with startup companies, you know, if they're the right partner for you, they see the growth potential and they really want a relationship that works and they'll work with you if you try to work with them. Yeah, I definitely see the value in looking for a partner rather than just uh, a vendor. Uh, does, it, does that require, I guess, setting that expectation from the beginning? How do you establish that you're looking for a partnership? I think one of the biggest struggles for us as young female millennial entrepreneurs, which I mean, both of us are under 30. Uh, and I think, how old were we when we started? 24, 25? Yeah. Um, that would, our, our biggest struggle was, um, Megan and I are not necessarily lacking in confidence, but to approach a company that we considered a significantly more established and, and having bigger business than us was a real, uh, confidence bowl. We didn't necessarily feel like we could come to the table with as much. And I think a lot of that struggle is basically walking into it and, and saying like, listen, I am doing things. I'm trying to work with you as a partner. I want to go in and talk to you that way, as opposed to feeling at their mercy. It's really just a confidence game of saying like, my business is as important as the person's business next to me. Mm-hmm. And my product is as important because it's as important to me. Yeah. Mm. Sure. Makes sense. So now today, you, 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 I think you were alluding to the fact that you're no longer doing this yourselves. Have you outsourced <laughs> the, this, this process of uh, labeling and bottling your, your products? Well, we tried to outsource a lot of what uh, of, of our process. And what we learned was we could outsource the, the labeling. We could not outsource the production or the filling. Uh, our particular product um, kind of fits in between two markets in such a way that there isn't necessarily a lab structure that supports it yet. Mm-hmm. So we talked to conditioner people about color and they'd get like way overwhelmed. And we talked to color people about conditioner and they'd get way overwhelmed just because they couldn't fit it into their existing systems. So what we ended up doing was uh, creating our own systems and ways and and hiring employees to be able to scale as fast as possible. Because at that point we were falling behind and we were like, we need to do this as fast as possible. So creating easy to step into systems where we could train people up and um, have them uh, in a comfortable environment where they felt confident to, to make decisions on their own and, and just, get at it. So to this day, we still produce and fill every single one of our products. We are just no longer hand labeling them and we're no longer fulfilling them ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Lior and I don't haven't done it ourselves in some time and we definitely haven't been doing it in my kitchen for yeah. a long time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this is certainly a much more complex system than someone that would just outsource the entire process and have maybe even the raw ingredients go straight to the the manufacturer goes straight to the, the the people that are doing the fulfillment and not ever see their inventory. You have to see some of your inventory. You have to send it out to another, uh, I guess, an outsourced partner that uh, handles the rest of it. Walk us through the, I guess, the the creation process of this system. It sounds complex, and I think it's going to. I think, especially your your system is probably unique compared to others because there is that process of a lot of it's done in house, but also a lot of it's done outsourced. Tell, tell us about that that process to set that all up. So I think it seems complicated from the outside, but I think the only way to create a sustainable system, and I think Megan would agree, is to simplify it as much as possible. Yeah. So if, um, I mean, like if, if you can private label your product and move straight to having no inventory, like in a place that you store, like bully for you, like congratulations, I envy the shit out of you. Yeah, we're certainly <laughs> not in favor of manufacturing your own product if you don't have to. If you can find a great partner who will do it for you, then great. We just, we tried to outsource ours 
and it just couldn't, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. And you know what? We've built up, uh, we've built up a team of people who are just absolutely incredible. We love working with them. And one of the real benefits that we have of being able to see our product is um, that we get to really QC each batch. And that close eye on our product really keeps our standards high, which is where we like them. Um, but as far as developing the processes, I mean, we meant we meant literally from making one-off bottles per sale to to produce to, to mass production, right? So we basically took uh, took the steps that we were already doing, tried to automate as much of them as possible by using available tools to us and not really worrying too much about like, well, you know, in a professional lab they would use X. We kind of simplified it down and said like, okay, well, what is the end result that we need? What are the existing tools that exist for similar items across industries? And how can we leverage those items to our benefit? Um, and so far, it's, uh, it's been working really well. Yeah. Okay, so now once you have created this system and then outsourced you know, parts of it, what did you, how much free time were you talking about? How much time was freed up on your end? And what did you spend the time focusing on instead? Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a funny question to answer largely because Hilarious. I, I think that we're just starting to ask ourselves for the first time ever, um, what we want to do with some additional time we have. Um, we now we have 16 employees now and, um, for the most part at the beginning, honestly, we didn't have a lot of free time. We didn't free up really much of anything so much as we displaced something we were working on with something else that mm. desperately needed to be done. So for the first, definitely the first 18 months, maybe even two years of our business, we were constantly out of stock. Um, and that was our biggest, hardest thing. As a startup, we needed to make sure that our that our customer service was excellent, but we also needed to make sure that our manufacturing was up to par so that we could stock everything. We have We have a maintenance product, so we have to have stuff ready all the time for people who need it. So really, when we got to the point where we had systems in place where we could um, hire employees and have them step into an existing system to work with our existing manufacturing. But honestly, there's always something else. There's always, you know, a problem employee over here or customer service is lacking and needs this thing. Or we have a fire with our fulfillment provider um, or, you know, we're, we're just now two and a half years in really being able to, for the most part, step out and work on the business and strategize um, and see the moving pieces from a much higher level um, than we were before. So really, I don't know that that much was was opened up so much as it just was displaced with something else at the time. The next biggest fire came in. Like, let me give you an example. Um, Megan and I used to, uh, well, for the first six months, Megan was uh, doing all of our production and fulfillment out of her house. And I was doing everything else, which meant that we literally had no time to think about where we were going. We were so locked into the day to day. By the time uh, January of 2015 rolled around, we were uh, doing maybe once every other month production runs where we would pull in part timers and temp workers and, and maybe one or two at a time. And they would help us with the production process. And while Megan and I would be filling in and bottling and uh, packing up to, to ship off to our fulfillment company, uh, on any break, I would be answering client services emails and Megan would be dealing with vendors, <laughs> dealing with vendors. Um, and and any time in between that, we were working on our marketing and social media. We were trying to take selfies. We were making sure that like our hair personally looked good so that if we had any advertising at all, we had something to show. Yep. Uh, we were uh, improving systems. And, and really, I would say we we are still, you know, 
there, there's still moments where we get sucked back into the day-to-day, but having an opportunity probably just in the past two months to step back and, and take a breath and go like, okay, literally, where can we improve now that we can see it? Yeah. And and that's been uh, extraordinarily valuable. Yeah, there's never really been a time where there's been a, a lack of very obvious need for something in some place. It's obviously 16 employees is, is, a, is a, a ton of, I guess, new employees over just two and a half years. You scout a lot. What have you, uh, what do you guys learn about the, the onboarding process for bringing on new employees? Because I think that's the most daunting part of hiring someone because a lot of times, especially when you're just one person working on the company and you're hiring your very first uh, employee, maybe part-time or, or, or temporary employee, you start to think like, man, do I want to spend the time teaching this person or should I use my time just to do that thing and move on to the next thing? Because it does require time investment. So tell us about your process to onboard a new employee into your company. Megan and I are fairly good delegators. Uh, letting, letting go of our, our, our Legos to work on other stuff, uh, wasn't always as much, uh, of a challenge for us. And we lucked out really early on by getting some amazing people who um, really just, just by luck um, and, and just gut instinct were like, you will be awesome. But that wasn't always the case. Like sometimes you have employees that just, you know, they're great people, you love them, but it's just not the right fit. And they would excel much better elsewhere. I think too, you like, you find what works um, within your organization over time. And it's, I don't know that it's something that's really a one size fits all for anyone. Um, but I think that inevitably you kind of have a guess and check situation where you mess up. And maybe if you mess up a couple times in the same way, you start to see like, Oh, that's, that's a serious problem. Like, um, we found personally, um, not only have we been working really hard on, uh, we have a really significant culture, um, in our company that people, kind of either fit or they don't, we found that that's a huge factor in someone's success. Um, even if they're great at their job, even if they are an excellent fit for someone else, if you don't fit into our culture, it really doesn't work. Um, we have to be all kind of rowing in the same direction, so to speak. Um, and then logistically, we found some other little things like we've noticed that um, our employees, at least in our business, tend to freak out if they receive um, an unsolicited raise. So we've had to change the way that we do raises with people and sort of like offer someone a promotion and give them 72 hours to think about it and say yes or no, as opposed to just saying like, hey, you're doing great. We want to give you a promotion. Here's your raise. Mm. Um, That doesn't work. So some of that's little stuff. And I think that that comes over time with kind of seeing how people in your environment behave. Yeah. I mean, what I think when Megan and I get together, really, we have we we come from very different places and we see things very, very differently in a complementary way. Um, but our, the culture that, that we create together, it was, it was hard for me at first to sit there and go like, oh, this isn't a perfect environment for everybody. And that was like a little bit of a blow to my self-esteem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, to be honest, it was, it was definitely a short sighted thing on my part. Like I'm going to create, you know, this thing and we're going to do it and it's going to be great. It's going to be nirvana it's for literally gonna, everyone. It's going to be perfect. And it's just like, you know, realistic. That's not how the world works. And there are different types of people who excel in different ways. And one of the things that we were kind of hoping to do early on was to create a horizontal employee structure mm. uh, because that was what we thought that we would prefer uh, if we were working somewhere. And what mm. we learned is that our our particular organization and the people in it who we got in early on or, or something about the way that either Megan and I are or all of us, all of our whole team as a collective do is we do much better in the traditional structure. 
and we tend to uh, get more done and, and we have better success that way, which we hate and totally tried to resist as like, we really like, existed at like colorful hair millennials. We were like, we will not have any structure. <laughs> we don't have structure in this place. But it turns out we're super we, traditional. Yeah, we are super traditional. And it, it makes one of our mentors laugh every time. Like, I think when I told him we were doing that, he like sat and laughed at me for a good 30 minutes. He's like, <laughs> you're so traditional. And I'm like, shut up. Yeah. Let's talk about this, the horizontal work structure. What what attracted you to you to this at first? And why didn't it work out? Um, I think Megan and I were just used to doing everything in the company ourselves. And we thought that we could just kind of keep everybody in the loop on everything and, and really just... Um, we're, we're very transparent as it is. We talk about struggles and successes every week with, with all of our employees present. Um, we don't hide things, but we, we do structure how the information comes out. And I think when we weren't doing that, when we were trying to have a horizontal sort of employee structure, even at a small, uh, on a small company scale, when we were maybe four or five people, mm-hmm. we noticed that uh, the reaction just wasn't good. And it didn't build the sort of team morale in the way that we were hoping and anticipating. We, people, I think, had a lot of trouble like staying within their job responsibilities when things were more horizontal. And I think for some um, companies that can work um, for us, because we have such specific um, segmented departments, um, it really doesn't. And as we scaled, we saw that more and more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was more so just com- came from our desire, like as employees, what would we want? Yeah. Um, and so that's why we tried that. We thought that would work really well for us. Um, and then it's just, you know, it's just one more pivot. And I think yeah. business ownership is all about pivoting anyway. I think what we learned also is that what we want is not what other people want. Right. Um, not everybody, and, 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 I, and I know that I already said that, but I actually mean it in a different way this time. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Megan and I are, are entrepreneurs. We think in a particular way, we work in a particular way, and we are motivated by particular things. Mm-hmm. And obviously, not everybody is an entrepreneur. There are some people who want to be entrepreneurs who are not. There are some people who would like run as fast as possible in the opposite direction. There totally. are people like that, that want to work for entrepreneurs but aren't themselves. And creating a structure that works for entrepreneurs i don't know if it, if it necessarily bodes well across the board for for people who work for entrepreneurs having mm, a company mm-hmm. nothing gets done yeah i mean yeah. we tried to hire people we saw ourselves in somewhat early on and in most cases that didn't work because hiring someone who is more entrepreneurial or wants to be an entrepreneur um we couldn't i think grasp the fact that a lot of people really are super happy being employees because we were never happy being employees. Mm-hmm. But I think that I think that to a certain extent, like keeping your employees happy and keeping a team working, you have to be able to like empathize with each person and know kind of what makes sense for them and and eventually over time really see how you know each person's brain ticks mm-hmm. and how what kind of brain we need in each of these spots. We actually just got some great advice for hiring, which was to really make a list of our uh, company values and and what we really see as as important internally and instead of uh focusing extraordinarily on the skill to focus on those values will this person work here will they be motivated by the things that we're motivated by so like for a lot of uh for for our company that kind of falls in lines of you know intersectional feminism being uh, direct and clear with your team Mm -hmm. being able to take and give tough love uh, practicing good hustle as opposed to bad hustle like finding something out or not beating yourself up if you fail, uh, you know, putting your health first. Um, just, uh, what else was on there? 
Uh, clarity, honesty, yeah. one piece are we missing. But basically, the gist of it is largely that like we focus on equality, we work hard, and we are brutally honest, and everyone has to give that and take that. Mm-hmm. Now, it sounds like one of the the big skill sets that you you both have uh, built over the time is that you are able to hire quickly and also seems to 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 fire or let go quickly if it wasn't a good fit. Now, based on your experience, how do you determine if someone will fit? with the company and match those values that that you wrote down uh, as quickly as possible? Honestly, that's still a work in progress for us, um, <laughs> to, to be really honest. Um, we try to get people up or out within the first 30 days. Mm. We do. We do. That has been like a definite focus of mm. the past six months. Um, and, you know, because we don't want to hold on to somebody who, because we know that long term, if it's not a good relationship, it's not going to be good for, for anyone. It's not going to be good for them and it's not going to be good for us. Um, but being first time employers, um, oh God, it's so challenging. It's right. the worst. Like I would not wish my first experience firing someone on anybody. And no. I would not wish the experience of being fired by me for the first time on anybody. No, it was awful for everyone. It was all. just, it was not good. I mean, are people surprised though when it happens or like, do you try to make it so that they're, it's not necessarily mutual, I guess, but that they saw it coming. Is, is it always usually that way or is it a surprise? I started to implement a structure that, uh, that is a, a probationary structure. So, so it would never come as a surprise again. That's the last thing that we want. No surprises in terms of employment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Megan and I have started to listen to more is our gut. And we are, we're encouraging our uh, our managers to think in that way as well. It's like you know if it's not working, and yeah. you and and when you can say it out loud, it's probably already too late. Yeah, start listening to your gut, say it out loud sooner, and see if it's repairable. Yeah, I think that honestly, our biggest barrier to scale is keeping a good team and having the right people in the right places. So it's a really big focus of ours, especially right now, but kind of always has been. Um, and like Leora said, even when we have people who are maybe meeting all of their KPIs or they're, they're doing their job correctly, but there's just like kind of a feeling either by us or their direct supervisor that like, it's just not the right fit. As soon as we kind of imagine someone else in that position, if it kind of eases up your tension and makes the department feel smoother, then then we kind of know. That's kind of our first gut instinct. And a lot of times we we do we make decisions based on that. And then as soon as you kind of let yourself see that, you often will suddenly see all the other places where that person isn't fitting that well mm-hmm. um, and where they're where that job isn't necessarily right for them. Sorry, as I was say, do you also move people from one role to to another at the company? We've attempted that shift before, but I think the important things that we've learned um, that we really kind of hold hard and fast to is don't square peg round hole somebody if they're not working yep. and um, you have to invent a role for them. And I, I know that you're talking about shifting between existing roles, but like if you have to invent a role for somebody, they are not right. We call that a wedge. We've we tried that a couple of times. It doesn't work. It's a wedge. Um, if you have to wedge someone in, it's not a good fit for anybody, period. And you should just take that in stride and they, they should either fix it and you should work with them to fix it or it's 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 time to cut ties. For the yeah. most part, I would say that when someone doesn't work um, within the company, it is almost 100% of the time a culture and values problem more mm-hmm. than it's a skills problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have started really realizing that we can't shift someone into another position and make that work. We also think that like over time when we've tried to move someone into a different position, it's been really hairy. Um, people feel like they've been demoted, even if they haven't, it creates a lot of resentment and mm-hmm. then it 
everyone from communicating openly and honestly, which is like, we have to do that or else we're screwed. Like if people are lying to each other, then that's, I think one of the number one things that will like sink the ship. So yeah, no lying, no being catty about other employees, not tear down. So aside from promotions, which is, you know, a different kind of movement, if someone isn't working out, um, we figure out why. And up until now, it's pretty much always just been there. They're not a good fit for the company Mm -hmm. more so not a good fit for that particular role. Now, do you have a traditional interview process too? Like, what's that process like? And how do you how can you try to pull out these details about their values, about their I guess their cultural fit, just from meeting them for the first time, even before they step, I guess, into their role at the company? Tricky question asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Each of our departments kind of has a unique interview process. For our production, there's definitely physical qualifications that you have to pass. Meet the team, see how they interact in space, see how they respond to colorful hair. And, you know, I think the important thing to recognize is you are never going to have that surefire thing. One one of my favorite good hire stories is our uh, executive VP, Lisa Nett. And um, she was our second hire ever. Mm -hmm. And we needed somebody to take over emails because I was dying and we were dying. And I was like, I need someone to answer emails. And when I was uh, working as a freelance photographer, Lisa Nett had uh, been the maid of honor or or a bridesmaid at, um, at a wedding I was photographing. And I saw her walk into an extraordinarily tense situation that was giving kind of everybody the chills and just diffuse it like it was no problem at all. She just walked in and just made it better in under three seconds. Yeah, we pretty much hired her based on that. Yeah, that was that was why we hired her. And you know what? When we had the interview with her, I basically texted her and I was like, hey, listen, I know you're employed, but I also know you're looking to shift. Can you meet for drinks tonight? And she said, yeah, absolutely. I'll meet you there. So we met up for drinks and she was, when we thought about our ideal client services person and the traits that they would embody, she was there for it. She was upbeat. She was happy about it. She was excited by the product. She wanted to talk to people all day. She uh, enjoys helping people. She gains satisfaction out of making sure that somebody has something correctly. Um, she, She gains satisfaction out of making sure people are happy and also out of making sure that the company benefits because of it. And at the end of the day, especially when you have more than one employee, your your loyalty is exclusively to the company. It can't be to an employee who might not be working out the right way. You can work with them. You can try and make it better. But at the end of the day, you have to preserve the company. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they're not working out, if they're going to drag down your ship, you've got everybody else to think about. And also you have your clients to think about. Yeah. Like, is this person hurting or helping my clients? Yep. And and we really work on a, like a cultural understanding of the fact that like our clients are a big deal for us. They pay everyone's bills. So you have to love Mm -hmm. them and you have to be like super happy about them and everyone has to prioritize them. But in terms of like, we talk about gut feelings a lot. We've already talked about that several times, but honestly, I think we go through a traditional interview process, but a lot of it is, is gut instinct. We see, um, you know, do they get along with everyone on their team? And it's not in a, you know, high school sort of like, can you guys be friendly sort of way, but in the sense, like, do you kind of click with everyone? Um, and that just goes back to sort of that same cultural fit of like, are you going to kind of row in the same direction at the same pace as everybody? Because that's the most important thing. Like we can train people. One of our vice presidents right now started as Leora's assistant and she came in with significantly fewer skills than she has now. 
Um, she came from she came a background with absolutely no no business experience, and she has killed it. And it's because she's she is driven, and she's an excellent cultural fit, and she's just like she's a kick-ass human being. So sometimes you can tell. And then also, you know, if they don't fit in within the first thirty days, get them out soon. Mm-hmm. Now, on the the quantitative side, I think I heard someone mention KPIs. How do how's that set up for the different roles? It depends. So, for example, like our color experts in the client services department have a certain number of emails that they're expected to get out per day. For the most part, we have had our managers in each department set um, what makes sense for them. Um, and for example, in manufacturing, we have um, you know how many units are getting out this week, and so to a certain extent, that can be a team effort. Um, and then. For um, for marketing, it can be based on videos, it can be based on sales or um, promotions, that sort of thing. Um, we push all of our department managers to set weekly goals, um, and basically the the meetings that Leora and I are really in with the team now are Monday morning one-on-one meetings that we have with each each manager. Um, and then all of our executive team as well. And then we all, everyone at a manager or an executive level on Fridays comes together and talks about the goals that they had set on Monday, how they did, and then they also set goals for their team. So we sort of like feed that kind of down the pipeline on our traditional management structure. <laughs> and that is what works the best for us. And um, yeah, so that's yeah. how we kind of structure KPIs. Yeah, managers review goals with us. Yep. And um, we help them set either more quantifiable or realistic ones or, or adjust it based on priorities that we're seeing for the company. But yeah. really, Megan and I know that when we were doing each of those jobs, it was a very different company. And we rely on them to be honest with us about their needs. Nice. So now I want to talk a bit about the the marketing side. Uh, when you mentioned earlier, I think one of you mentioned how it's a high education product because nothing like this exists yet and maybe people don't even know a solution is available out there. Talk to us about how you overcome this, I guess, education gap in the market. Yeah. Repeating. <laughs> Repeating. Yeah. Repeating. So we... Um, when we started out, um, Leora was really handling client services and I was handling marketing and those were kind of our babies um, growing up and we kind of split production as much as possible um, and gave that up first. So on the marketing side, um, Instagram has been really crucial for us. It's our biggest platform and we use um, we use Instagram primarily as a way to kind of communicate through influencers um, out to their audiences and kind of have them explain what it is um, and then just repetition. So starting from the ground up, um, we spent a lot of time getting influencers um, on our team. And I think because our product is different and new and exciting for people, um, we got a lot of we got a, a lot of in with some pretty big influencers, which was awesome for us. Um, and they've made great relationships. Yeah. Like they're so fun yeah. and sweet. <laughs> yeah. We love we love everyone that we've worked with that people are the influencers we work with are so excellent. A lot of them have been models for us. Um, and basically, we we push heavily through word of mouth. So um, something like 93% of our sales um, come from um, direct traffic. So someone who is either clicking a link um, to come directly to our page from either like our Instagram um, or someone who is typing us into their browser and like heard about us from a friend or something. Very little comes from search engines. Um, very little comes from we we do almost no paid advertising. Um, so we find that influencers and word of mouth through um, just people who use our product, our regular clients, 
um, really helps kind of spread the message. It's a lot easier to understand if your friend tells you like, hey, I use this thing and it's a conditioner. It keeps my hair bright um, as opposed to uh, trying to learn from from ground zero, I guess. Um, but we do also have our website set up in such a way that like education is first. We offer free color advice um, through our client services team. And really every single aspect of our company is surrounding that sort of initial market gap of getting people to understand that our product isn't dye um, and what it can do for you and why you need it. Mm. So how do you you work with uh, these influencers? I think for a lot of companies, a lot of products, a lot of brands, it's probably a lot easier because all you have to do is just put your product on in the face of your 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 target customers and people get it right away. But you, not only do you have to do that, but you also have to explain why there's a why the, about the problem, about why this there's a solution, why your product is the right solution. So tell us about how you, uh, I guess, work with influencers to 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 do to, I guess to do all of that. For the most part, if you have colorful hair, you know there's a problem. We, we <laughs> it's, don't, not, it's not a mystery. We don't have to teach you that there's a problem. Um, we have a number of people who use our products um, instead of dye to color their hair on um, from the beginning, which is something we didn't initially intend. Um, and so that's uh, a slightly different market that we speak to a little bit differently. But for the most part, um, for kind of our core client audience, the type of people who they go to a salon they have their hair colored blue, for example, and they want to keep it that way and not have it fade out to kind of like an ugly, muddy mess. I mean, purple would be more realistic. <laughs> That's true. Purple. Purple is our bestseller. Megan and um, I can look at purple for like a solid year. <laughs> <laughs> so these people, if, if you've ever had any fantasy color in your hair, you know that there's a problem. So in terms of how we communicate through influencers, really what we would do is um, I, I would email them early on and say, Hey, we have this product. We love your hair. We'd love to give you some. We'd love to have you try it. Um, here's kind of how to use it. And here's what it is. Um, and we just had a lot of people really gravitate to our product because there was such a need in the market. So we use that to um, to kind of find people who are really interested in, you know, people want an easy way to maintain their hair color. People who have this lifestyle like and have this aesthetic, they don't necessarily want to be spending, you know, every fifth day of their life in a freezing cold shower um, because they have to keep their hair looking nice. So I think everyone was really open to a solution. We got a really great response from our influencers. And then we just kind of said like, hey, I'm going to educate you about how this works. I'm going to tell you how to use it and then go tell the world whatever you want to tell them. So um, we really didn't push a, a stringent, like we, we didn't give people words to say, um, we didn't say we want you to point out this, that, and the other. And it also helped um, to educate us on kind of people's response to it and, mm -hmm. and what they thought it was and how they used it. It gave us an example of like how people um, use it in ways that we didn't expect initially, like to change their color slightly. Um, but basically, we would just say like, go talk to your audience, tell them whatever you want to say. And um, if you love it, great. And that's a lot of how we spread the word. I, um, I think something else that Megan did amazingly well while she was writing these emails was she went straight into personalization. Um, she she looked at their Instagram profile very thoroughly. She saw what they did. She saw what they liked. And she she made specific references to that in their email. She didn't say, we'd love to send you some product. She would say, we really want to send you pastel pink daily because we think that that would mm -hmm. be perfect for your hair. Um, so she really made sure that those influencers knew that they were cared about deeply and that we had taken the time to invest in that relationship. 
Um, and, and I think that was so key in making sure that we got a positive response. There was no blast emailing. It was, it's, it's always direct. It's always personal. Yeah. Uh, we want to be sure that our, you know, and, and to an extent, our influencers are also our clients. We want to be sure that they know that we care about them and that we care about their decisions and we care about their aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, so of course we're going to send them something personalized. Yeah. It's the same thing as with our vendors. Like everything we do is all about partnerships. We want relationships with people. And like lots of people say that it's a big thing in business, but mm-hmm. I think it just takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of people kind of want to skip that step. And I think that that's a big part of why we were successful. Nice. Now, what, what has worked best in terms of, uh, I guess, the, I guess on Instagram when you are trying to educate uh, your target customer about your products? Is it images? Is it video? Is it explaining the captions? Like what, what's worked best for, for explaining how your product uh, works? Well, I think anybody on the internet knows that nobody reads the caption. No one reads the caption. Nobody ever. reads the caption. Don't put anything. If you, need, <laughs> if you need to communicate it, put it in the photo. Make a yeah. text photo if you have to, but don't put it in the caption. Yeah. Then repeat it in the caption. But yeah. know that most anybody is not going to do their own reading on, on an image-based platform, especially. For sure. So a lot of what Megan and I found really useful early on uh, and still now, and we refined them so much and they're so much more beautiful than they were originally, was that we showed our product on three different types of hair. We showed it on platinum blonde, on a medium blonde, and on a brown, so that we have this, this uh, library of photos to give examples to help people envision what it will look like on themselves. Uh, we also really... Um, Early on, we adopted a hashtag. We encouraged our clients to hashtag themselves and we started featuring them. Like, look, real life story. This person uses our stuff. They're not an influencer. They're not anybody. They're our clients and they're important to us. We want to showcase how awesome they are. And we want to make sure that you can envision if you have this color hair, you can get to hear. Here's what they used. Here's how they did it. Yep. To this day, 90% of what we have on our company's Instagram feed is uh, a combination of those strand tests and um, reposts of clients who use our stuff. We love to show, um, especially people who, like maybe they started with medium blonde and they put our you know, teal on their hair and ended up with green, like interesting color wheel stories. Um, or sometimes people who are just maintaining and have a quote you know, in their caption that says like, hey, I haven't dyed my hair for three months. This feels great. Um, my hair's, you know, super healthy now. Yeah. Um, so we just really try to like tell, help tell other people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's the way yeah. we promote. We want to celebrate brand. the community. So we want to show off our clients' creativity with our product because honestly, yeah. like they are the people who are going to do it the best. Um, and we're so excited. We're going to bring some people into uh, into a space soon where we can film them coloring their own hair with our product and really uh, continue to build up that library of resources. So yeah. early we're, on when we're we didn't, about it. Early on when we didn't have as many of those, um, Leora and I showed ourselves a lot more. We took a lot of selfies and kind of put that on the um, Instagram to get it up and going. And then we just kind of gave away product. Um, given that we're in the beauty industry, our profit margins are healthy enough that we can afford to do that as opposed to marketing. It's a much cheaper option for us. So when we needed people, uh, people's experiences, people's audiences, whatever, we just, we just threw free product at them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're generous with it. Yeah. Um, somebody people loved. Yeah. yeah. So even though the, the, the products are like, like you're saying high margin, so you can afford to, to give them away, it still takes a, obviously a lot of time to reach out to these people, to personalize the message, to start working with them. So I'm, I'm assuming that you're, you're still probably pretty selective though, right? With the, with identifying which influencers you want to work with. What's the process for that? How do you pick and choose which ones you should spend your time on to, to write these personal emails uh, to them? So um, I haven't been doing it myself in some time. Uh, we have a, uh, director of marketing who does it now and she's incredible um 
a lot of what we look for in an influencer that will be successful for us is um, someone who also fits our culture in the same way that we would want an employee who fits our culture. Um, someone who is um, has kind of an aesthetic that we think would be really useful to our Instagram feed. We work very hard on keeping a diverse Instagram feed and showing our product on all types of hair because it works on all hair types. Um, we also focus on um, people's engagement, which I think is a lot more important than necessarily how many um, how many followers they have. So someone with a really strong level of engagement, um, good interaction with their clients or with their clients. I'm sorry, a good interaction with um, their followers and someone who has followers who kind of have this like, you know, aspirational sort of tone. Like we want people with followers who look to them for suggestions. Um, we don't want somebody who's like just pimping out everything that comes their way because it's free or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and they like a feel on their Instagram of like, whatever's the flavor of the day. Um, we want people with some, some authenticity and also, you know, followers that pay attention to them and are listening to them for advice. We did a couple of photo shoots with, um, four of our influencers. We did, um, it, it was just so great. We did them about like a year apart and like, you know, somebody's a, a good fit in that way when you can just like show up, meet them in person for the first time. And you're like, Hey, we're going to spend the next eight hours taking a picture of your face. How do you feel about that? And they're like, I feel really good about it. Let's hang out. And you know, you order pizza and meet on set and you, you form, uh, you form real friendships with them. And that is, um, it, it's just so rewarding, honestly, to know that one, you, you created a product that you sent to them and it made their lives better just like as a person because they don't have to live their lives around their hair, but also that you can then meet up and continue to collaborate across uh, multiple sort of threads. That That is really nice. Nice. So one thing that was mentioned uh, in the pre-interview questions that I definitely want to touch on was that you, you guys want to f- focus on or you focused on pivoting quickly and not committing to a mistake just because time had been put into it. Talk to us a little bit more about this. What, what did you mean by that? Do you have any examples you can give? Oh, let's see. Not committing to a mistake. Um, <laughs> there are a lot of examples. Didn't you find that on Pinterest, on a Pinterest thing that you sent me? I did. I The first time I saw it, it was on Pinterest and um, it resonated so deeply because Megan and I are fast decision makers. We look at a situation and if we have a backup feeling, we're not happy with the way it's going. We're like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to change direction. And we actually just had a major session like that uh, this week where we've done a lot of reading and we've done a lot of looking at the market and what we've been doing, what's been working, what's not been working. And we sat down and we went, why hasn't this been working? We had like four product ideas kind of circulating for this year. And we decided to literally backtrack on all of them, declutter, refine the vision and give it down to our team. And luckily our team is really used to us pivoting hard on a direction and saying, nope, we're making this change. This is what's happening. Here's the new direction. Here's why. And they're really good at taking it on. Yeah. If I could narrow down, like if I had to pick one reason why we've been able to get to where we are, it's that we can pivot hard. We're really good at learning all the time, taking in new info. And as soon as that new info brings um, sort of a different decision or a different path to light, we're like, yep, okay, that's the next thing. Move over that way. For example, we, uh, we we bought a uh, we 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 purchased a custom made for us uh, filling machine that was supposed to massively simplify our production process <laughs> and uh, ease up the workload on our on our production people. And uh, we spent we spent an appropriate amount of money for what it was supposed to do on it, but a large amount for us on, in terms of what we had spent. Yeah, on it, was, it was it was six figures. Yeah. 
And uh, the machine did not work. We spent uh, time and money upgrading the electrical in our warehouse. We created a whole space for it. We designed a process around this machine. And we tried endlessly with, with frustration and tears to get this thing to work. And it is just like a giant metal monster right now and does not work. <laughs> and, and you know, we, we sat down and our team is like, this is not working. We're like, okay, we hear you. It's not working. We're going to pivot hard. We're going to instead increase, like, production people. We're going to do semi-automated instead of fully automated, and we're going to build up that way. Done. We're going to get rid of this thing. Yeah, just get rid of it. Take the loss. We mm-hmm. actually specifically had a contract that we could get refunded for it if it did oh, not. Nice. And the yeah. company went out of business. Yeah. Not nice. So, so there was that. So anyway, <laughs> the point is we're, we're selling it. We're taking a loss. We're moving on to something else. The fact that it cost us a nice, healthy chunk of money um, is not going to prevent us from moving to something that makes more sense. You yeah. know, spending time that. spending time being upset that we made the wrong decision is is costs us money. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that 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 kind of attitude to to be able to I guess kind of cut your losses and move on and not be so absorbed in doing things in a certain way just because you made that decision at the beginning. I think the difficult part that a lot of people have is that how do they know that they're at a point where they should be making a pivot versus maybe holding on a little bit longer and waiting for it to potentially, I guess, resolve itself or end up in a much more favorable uh, spot by just kind of staying the course. How do you make that decision? Uh, I, I think we're just coming right back around to the thing we've been saying a bunch already, which is it's a lot of gut instinct, really. We can mm-hmm. feel it when something's wrong. And it's it, like, for example, with the labels. Yeah. We knew that pushing through with the labels was important for our business, that adjusting our entire manufacturing process wasn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, we couldn't outsource it. We couldn't then ship our product to a filler to have them fill and then label it. Just like the time was too much. We needed it done this way. So that was a struggle that we put a lot of time into creating. We put like the first six months of our company into getting our labels right. Um, something that didn't work was for, for the long term was when we first started filling, we were using 100 milliliter plastic syringes to fill every bottle. To fill up bottles that are 236 milliliters. <laughs> we know that now. Um, so... That in the short term was sustainable, in the long term not sustainable. And we weren't going to invent a way to make a syringe work for us. We were going to completely pivot, try a different system that we didn't think was going to work, reach out to a new partner and say, like, hey, can you make this thing for us? And you know what? That's still how we feel right now. And that really worked. Yeah. So if if you feel like I think the gut feeling kind of lends down to it's like, do you feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel? Can you adjust other processes around this? Yes, no. Yeah. And if you can't, even if you're really attached to the idea, it's not worth chasing because it's going to be at the expense of your company. And like we said before, nothing comes before the company. Right. And really the life cycle of what that looks like is like, we will start feeling weird about something and we'll say like, Matt, wow, this is like giving me a lot of headaches, more than it should, a lot of anxiety, whatever. There will like, be some sort I can't of, eat for a week. Yeah, I can't sleep. There's some sort of negative like energy around it. And then we'll be like, okay, why is this happening? Oh, it's because like we're looking at this and there's going to be a dead end in six months and we can tell that this like system is not going to work. We're going to outgrow it or we've already outgrown it and it's causing a bottleneck and we can't get around it. What do we need to do instead? And then we will go forward with some sort of like, you know, learning push where we will try and figure out as much as possible, learn everything around that subject, figure out what we could possibly do and then come together and do some brainstorming, figure out the next way to go, decide on an effort and push that way. And the important thing is to recognize that like, you're never going to hit on 
the right decision. There is no right decision at any point. You're going to make the decision that's right for you at the time and whether or not you have to change it down the road. Like, okay, well, you failed. No problem. Next idea. Like, go go forth and fuck up. No, Like, (laughs) like practically no decision we've ever made has been the right decision for more than six to 12 months. I mean, it's the right decision right now, but inevitably you'll have to change it. So it's just being comfortable, like looking at stuff that was right before or maybe was never right and just saying like, nope, it's got to. It's got to be different. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Awesome advice. Again, overtone.co is the store. Uh, what do you guys want to see the the brand, the business be this time next year? What are the, the goals or the focuses this this coming year? Well, we tripled last year, so maybe some fresh air. <laughs> <laughs> no, quadruple. Excellent. High five. <laughs> awesome. So thanks so much for your time, Laura, Leora and Megan. Uh, where else can listeners uh, check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Our Instagram handle is at Overtone Color, O-V-E-R-T-O-N-E-C-O-L-O-R. Um, that's also our handle on pretty much everything else. You can find us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook as well. If you nice. want to see pictures of Megan's face, you can see it at, <laughs> at Megan Scarlet. And if you want to see pictures of my face, you can see it at K underscore L-I-O-R-A. <laughs> awesome. So we'll link all that in show notes. Thanks so much again. Thanks also, for having, thanks for having us. us. Here's a sneak peek of what's in store for the next Shopify Masters episode. We actually said that they had fulfilled it, sent us some tracking numbers. We passed them on to our customers. They said they were going to go active in like two days or something. And then we found out that those tracking numbers were not real. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.